So the passage this morning that we're going to be reading together is Acts 15. So feel free to turn there now. Either your own Bibles or follow along with me uh, behind me. We will be reading the entirety of Acts 15. This is the Word of God. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling their minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, 
you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. All right, good morning. All right, kids, where, where are you guys at this morning? Raise your hands so I can see you. All right, so my first question for you is, who out there thinks they can beat me in a race? I have to warn you, I'm 40 and slow. So, I mean, some of you seem pretty confident. So, all right, I'm just gonna, I'm going to pick Drew, because he's in the front. Put your hands down. So who thinks Drew could beat me in a race? That hurts. Okay, put your hands down. Now, some of you might know this. Might not know this. Also, my daughter, Olivia. Can you wave your hand over there, kiddo? This week, she broke her heel. So she has this thing on her foot called a walking boot, and the doctor said she can't run. So who thinks I can beat Olivia at least? <laughs> okay. okay, now what about if Drew runs the race and I drive my van? Now who thinks I can beat Drew? All right, so what, what changed? Right? You didn't have confidence in me against Drew in a race, but you had lots of confidence against me and Olivia in a race. Why? What changed? Say it again. Okay. Yeah. So I can run, she, can, she has to walk. So I've got a, maybe an unfair advantage, right? Now, what about the Drew runs and I drive? Levi? I have a car that goes through. My man can go super fast. <laughs> That's right. It'd be, it'd be hard to run faster than a car. Okay. Alright, the reason why we're talking about this is because when it's just me versus Drew, there's there's a more level playing field, right? He's, he's younger, probably faster. I'm older, probably slower. But like we both have a, a somewhat fair chance to win the race. But if we make it against someone else and the rules change, like she has to walk and I get to run, then I have an unfair advantage. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because of something that's interesting that happens in our passage today, and I think that it, it applies to you kids and, and to us grown-ups. One thing that there's this, this conflict that happens, this dis disagreement that happens 
between these two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. And one of the things that settles it is this guy named Peter says that the, the Gentiles were given the Holy Spirit just like the Jews were given the Holy Spirit. And what that tells us is that there's not a, a Jewish Holy Spirit and then a different Holy Spirit for the Gentiles. In the same way, there's not an adult Holy Spirit that the adults get and then the kids get like a, a smaller kid-sized version. Right? There's just one Holy Spirit. And, and I think the way that should encourage you as kids, and the way that it should encourage us as parents, is that we know when our kids trust in Jesus, they get the same Holy Spirit that we get. Right? That means they have, the, the, the playing field is level. Right? They have just as much of a chance for success in the Christian life as we do. They have just as much of a chance to, to fight sin as we do. They have just as much uh, faith in them as we do. Uh, we should not look at our kids and think that they have a, a smaller version of faith, or a smaller version of grace, or a smaller version of the Holy Spirit. Like Peter can say of the Gentile, we can say of our children, they have received the Holy Spirit just like we have. Because we believe what saves us is faith in Jesus, and not our age, not our abilities, not anything else that we might tack on. And so, uh, parents, I would encourage you to go home and talk to your kids more about what you learned from this passage, uh, and, and ask them what they learned from this passage, because if they're in Jesus, they have the Holy Spirit just like you do. So, uh, let's get into this passage this morning. So, last week... We saw Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're wrapping up their first missionary journey, and, and as they were doing that, they, they were facing all kinds of conflict, external conflict from outside. There were people that were opposing the gospel and their message, and so they had all this, this controversy and conflict that they faced. In today's passage, we're going to see that external conflict become internal. It's no longer forces outside the church, outside of the faith that are opposing what's happening. Now it's going to be internal forces. There's going to be some, some disagreement between the Jews and the Gentiles and the church. And then at the end of the passage, there's going to be disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And, and as we see this conflict happening, the, the good news of the passage is that the purity of the gospel is preserved through the midst of this conflict. Right, this early conflict in the life of the church had, had the, the potential to really uh, derail their ministry, and derail their preaching of the gospel. But, but they work together, they come together, they, they, they meet, they talk, they, they work things out, and they come up with a solution that still preserves the gospel. And that they're, they're saved only by grace through faith, that they don't, they don't require uh, the Gentiles to keep the law. So we're going to see that happen. And even though there's this conflict between Paul and Barnabas, and they end up parting ways, uh, that's not the end of their story. Story, and it's been through this, this splitting, God multiplies the mission in Acts. So the first thing we're going to see in this passage is what's called the Jerusalem Council. And so what's happening here, as, as Eric read for us, is that Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. They're in Antioch, and as they're in Antioch, these, these guys from, from Judea, kind of from like the, the main uh, Christian headquarters at the time, they come to Antioch, and they start teaching the believers there. Really, they start false teaching the believers there, because they're saying that unless the Gentiles get circumcised, unless the Gentiles keep the Old Testament law, they could not be saved. That's what these guys are preaching. 
as you can imagine, based on what we know of Paul and based on what we know of Barnabas, uh, they were not cool with this. And so when they hear what's going on, uh, it says that they have no small dissension and debate with them. There's a big disagreement. There's a big blow up in the life of the church because these people come in and are saying, if you want to Gentiles, if you want to believe in Jesus, if you want to follow him, if you want to be part of the church, you've got to get circumcised and you've got to keep the Old Testament law. And so because of this, uh, this, this kind of disunity that's forming around how the Gentiles embrace the faith, they, they send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to meet with the church to come up with a solution. So on their way, Luke tells us in verse 3 uh, that they are encouraging other believers. They're encouraging the Christians as they're going through. They're telling them what God has been doing among the Gentiles. And Luke says that that news brought those people great joy. But then they get to Jerusalem. When they get to Jerusalem, they do the same thing. They tell them about what God has been doing among the Gentiles, but there's a different response now. Look at verse 5. He says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and says, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. It's pretty, pretty heavy-handed, right? It's, it's necessary. We must order them, right? Anytime any believer orders you to do something, you should step back and think, like, really? Unless it's the Bible ordering us, and then we should say, yes, let's do it. Um, but they want to order the Gentiles to keep the law of Moses. And so there's, there's two things we should see about this. These, these Pharisees and their initial... The first thing is that it it should not surprise us that some Pharisees have believed the gospel. Right? I think that, you know, as as we we go through the gospels, the the Pharisees are are the bad guys. Right? They're they're the bad guys in the story. And I think that we we begin to think that, like, they're all hopeless and, like, can't be saved. They're always going to oppose the gospel. And then we remember that, that Paul was a Pharisee. Right, and he, he was redeemed. And these other Pharisees, even though they clearly get it wrong here in, in Acts 15, they had embraced the gospel. And there's this quote from, from Sam Storms, which I really like, which I think we have on the slide. He says, Never underestimate the degree to which you falsely believe that God loves less those who disagree with you more. And I, I, I feel that when I think about the Pharisees. When I think about people that, that maybe land in a more legalistic place than I would, I think God likes me better because I'm not legalistic. God likes me better because I don't try to put this burden on other people. But the reality is that God loves me because I put my faith in Jesus. And if a Pharisee, if a legalist, if if someone I very much disagree with puts their faith in Jesus, God loves that person like he loves me, because he loves both of us because of Jesus. The second thing we should see about what the Pharisees have said is that what they are teaching here, or what what they're advocating for, is legalism. A kind of simple definition of legalism would be that legalism is saying that that to be saved, you need Jesus plus something else. So in order to be a Christian, you must trust in Jesus and do blank. For these Pharisees, it was keep the law and be circumcised. For us, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's, it's come to this church. Maybe it's worship in this style. Maybe it's, you know, use the ESV translation. Maybe it's uh, wear, wear plaid shirts on Sunday mornings. 
You know, we might have a thing that we think, if you're really a Christian, if you really want to follow Jesus, if you really want him to love you, you must trust in him and do something else. And that's what these Pharisees are pushing for. So to deal with this this false teaching that's creeping into the life of the church, they form the the Jerusalem Council. They get the elders of the church together. They invite people in like Paul and Barnabas from outside. They begin to discuss, how can we solve this problem? And and the first thing Luke tells us is in verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate. So there was a lot of debate about this. And that might surprise us, because we might think this seems pretty cut and dry, right? We, we know later on from what Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament that legalism is bad. How, how do they not get that? How, how is there any kind of discussion about what these Pharisees are saying? But we need to remember that what's happening here is a completely new thing. Right? They're in the midst of, of, a, of a newly complex situation as the Jews are starting to interact with the Gentiles. And these Gentiles who, who had never embraced any kind of religion like this are coming into the faith. Uh, their religious background was completely different than that of the Jews. Right? They, they did things like offer you know, ritualistic sacrifices at the temple. There was temple prostitution. They, they worshipped idols. There were, there were all these other things that were a normal part of their religious practices. And now they're following Jesus, and that makes the Jews very uncomfortable. That freaks them out because they think, well, what if, what if they start doing that stuff here? What if they start doing that stuff around us? We don't like that. We're not okay with that. And so for both of these groups, worship and, 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 and faith in God looked very different. And so it was a complicated thing to work out. So there's a lot of debate. But then Peter speaks. Peter tells them about, or reminds them about how God used Peter to to spread the gospel to the Gentiles at first. He reminds them that God God knows the heart. Uh, God bore witness to the Gentiles. They they saw it happen in what Peter did. He gave them the Holy Spirit just like he gave the Holy Spirit to them. And like I said with, with the kids, that's a truth we need to remember. Right? That there's there's one Holy Spirit and all of us get it. Right? There's not a conservative Holy Spirit and a liberal Holy Spirit. There's not a Democrat Holy Spirit and a Republican Holy Spirit. Maybe you think, of course there's not a Democrat Holy Spirit. How could there be? There's not a, a grown-up and a kid Holy Spirit. There's not a Jew Holy Spirit and a Gentile Holy Spirit. There's one Holy Spirit given to all who put their faith in Jesus regardless of which hobby horses are important to them. In their salvation, Peter says, God made no distinction between us and them. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So the first thing, Peter says they're putting God to the test. Why are they putting God to the test? They're putting God to the test because if they do this, they would be using their God-given authority to distort the gospel of Jesus. They'd be using the authority that's been entrusted to them as leaders of the church to put a burden on people that they're not supposed to put on people. The gospel doesn't burden us. It unburdens us. And as people who preach the gospel... 
That's how we should preach the gospel. Also notice Peter's, Peter's humility here and his vulnerability. Right? Even as he says, we shouldn't put this yoke on them, he acknowledges no one's kept it anyway. He acknowledges that he himself hasn't been able to keep the law. They haven't been able to bear this burden. Why would they put it on anyone else? He identifies with them. So what's the answer to this? They can't put this burden on the Gentiles. They themselves haven't been able to keep it. What is the answer to their collective failure? The answer is verse 11, which is gospel truth. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That's the answer. The answer isn't for them to keep the law. The answer isn't for them to be circumcised. The answer isn't for them to, to worship Jesus just like they worship Jesus and to follow all their customs and regulations. The answer is for them to remember that they're all saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That is what brings them together. That is what's going to help them work out this conflict that they're having in the church. Because of the grace of Jesus, the Gentiles don't have to keep the law, and neither do the Jews. Is they're saved by grace. That's the only thing that's required of them. That's the only thing that's required of us. So this quote from, from Martin Wood-Jones. He says, If ever you are putting the gospel to another person, you've got a very good test whether you are preaching the gospel in the right way. What's that? Well, let me put it like this to you. If your presentation of the gospel does not expose it to the charge of antinomianism, you are probably not putting it correctly. Antinomianism is a, is a fancy word for like lawlessness. And what Lord Jones is saying is that, that when we preach the gospel, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. People might say, well, what about obedience? Well, what, what, about, what about this? What about, what about this other thing? What, if, if, if that's true, then, then can't we do whatever we want? And yeah, there, are, there are, are more things to say in response to those questions. But the gospel itself is that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that opens us up to that charge. That, that we're, we're not saying we have to keep the law. And we need to be okay with that. And Peter wants the gentry, the, the, the Pharisees, to be okay with that. So his response shuts down the debate. That gives space for, for Paul and Barnabas to share about what God has done among them through the Gentiles. Everybody, everybody listens to them about what signs and wonders have done. After they finish speaking, James speaks. James is kind of like the, the elder statesman in the group, the one that, that the kind of more conservative Jews related to uh, more closely. They, this is what he says. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, he's just using his, his uh, Hebrew name, is related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. One thing that's interesting about this here is that throughout the Old Testament, the, the people of God are called the people. And so James here, even as, he's, even as he's speaking, he's talking about how the, the people of God are being redefined in their midst. No longer is it about their, their ethnic, their familial heritage. Now it's about faith in Jesus. Not just Jews that are the people of God. Now Gentiles are the people of God. Now, now anyone who puts their faith in Jesus can be the people of God. 
It says, with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it was written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnants of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment... And that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been sprinkled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. So James here is, is using an Old Testament quote to, to remind the Pharisees that this has been part of God's plan from all along. Right? It's not like Jesus died on the cross, Acts starts to happen, and God is like, well, what do we do with these Gentiles who believe in the gospel? Right? His heart has been through them for the nations all throughout the Old Testament. James could have picked a, a, a dozen passages to show this, but he picks this one to show how God has all, always had a heart for the nation. His plan has always been to bring them in. And so they should not be the ones that are going to oppose it now. So James makes this recommendation, and, and they go along. And they're going to they're going to send them out. And before we talk about the letter being delivered and the response, I think we need to stop and ask a question. Right? As, as James opposes the Pharisees, but then they put these these four kind of uh, expectations on them to to abstain from things polluted by idols, to abstain from what has been strangled, to abstain from blood, and to abstain from sexual immorality. The question that we should ask here is: Is this legalism? Right? Are they saying to be part of the church, you must do these things. To be, to be following Jesus, you must do these things. And, and no, I don't, I don't think that's what's happening here. Instead, it seems like, especially based on how Paul interacts with these issues later on in the New Testament, that what's happening here is that they're putting these, these kind of recommendations out there, this, this counsel out there to the Gentiles in order to ease some of the conflict that's happening between Jew and Gentile, so that they can relate to one another in a way that they can have fellowship, right? Because if a Gentile invited a Jew over to his house, right, to show hospitality, to grow together in their faith, and then serve that Jewish person's food that had been offered to an idol, that would have been a really big deal. That would have been really unloving and unkind to that Jewish person. So he's, he's throwing these recommendations out there to kind of point them in the right direction, to, to help kind of ease this tension that's happening in the life of the church. I don't think he's saying, in order to, to follow Jesus, you must do these things. So they kind of create this letter, and then they say, let's send it out to the churches. Let's, let's give our advice to all these people. And so the apostles and the elders and the whole church, they, they pick guys to go out and kind of carry this letter around and deliver it to the churches. So it's Paul and Barnabas. It's Judas called Barsabbas. Uh, and, and Silas, leading, among the, leading men among the brethren. They sent out the letter, and Eric read the letter for us. And as they deliver it, it's received with great joy. And they report back this, this decision that was made to the churches. And I think the highlight here, as I already said, is that they don't have to keep the law. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to follow all the Old Testament rules. Uh, it's just, just these things. Um, and they should abstain from them. I also think it's important for us to notice that these are, these are, these are different things in Cadillac. This one time several years ago, we were exploring partnering with this church planting network. Uh, and I meet with this guy, and he slides his piece of paper across the table to me. It's a list of things. And on this list says, uh, speaking in tongues, 
pornography, and alcohol. And he says, would you sign off on these things? I was like, these are three very different things. What, what did he mean by sign off? And then he explained it, well, you know, don't say speaking in tongues is required for salvation. And I was like, check. He's like, say pornography is bad, check. And say that alcohol should be consumed in moderation as a matter of personal conscience. It's like, okay. But the way the list was presented was these are all exactly the same thing, and they're clearly not exactly the same thing. And I think here we should recognize, and, and Paul is going to flesh this out later in the New Testament, that the things in this list aren't even all the same thing. Right? Sexual immorality is a very different thing than, say, eating meat from a strangled animal. And Paul is going to talk later about how, uh, you know, for the sake of fellowship, even though we could maybe do some of those things with food, maybe we shouldn't in order to protect relationships with other people. Sexual immorality is something that's, that's always opposed in the New Testament. So Paul uh, is going to flesh that out later in the New Testament. The end of the letter ends with, if you, do the, if you keep yourself from these, you will do well, farewell. I don't think that's saying that like, if you do these things, then you know, good things will happen in your life. Instead, he's just kind of saying, like, it would be great if you would do these things. It would be good for the church. It would be good for you. It would be good for the community. It would be good for fellowship if you would do these things. They're trying to avoid disunity and preserve community in the gospel, in the life of the church, and the church's reputation in the community. Right, you notice that James earlier said that the, you know, the law of Moses is, is read in every city on the Sabbath. What he's talking about there is that lots of people know the customs of the Jews. And if the Gentiles coming into the church just kind of blatantly uh, oppose all of them, that's going to be really bad for relationships. And so they should not do these things. They don't have to do them to be saved, but they should do them to love others well. So Judas and Silas encourage the church after reading the letter, and then they head back to Jerusalem, and uh, Barnabas and Antioch, or Paul stay in Antioch. Now, look down in your Bible at verse 34. Can you find it? If, if you have an ESV, you'll notice that verse number 33 is there. And verse number 35 is there, but verse number 34 is, is not there. Instead, we've got a footnote down at the bottom that says, Some manuscripts insert verse 34, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Now, before we talk about what's happening here, like, like pretty much every time something like this comes up, like, I have a little like debate in my head. Like, should I bring this up, or should I not bring this up? Like, if I bring this up, is it going to cause you to be like, oh my goodness, what happened to verse 34? Can I even trust my Bible? Whereas if I don't bring it up, I'm worried that one of you is going to be like, where's verse 34? What happened? Why won't Dave tell me about this? What's he trying to cover up? <laughs> And so we're going to talk about it, even though it might be a little confusing or distracting from, from what really matters in this passage. So what's happening here is that there are, you know, there are, there are thousands, like 6,000-ish New Testament manuscripts. Those would be the copies of the New Testament in Greek and in other early languages that we have access to. And between those manuscripts, there are some, some differences. Now that sounds scary, but the vast 
majority, the vast majority of those differences are like spelling issues. So if you think about how the word color is spelled in American English, C-O-L-O-R, versus, uh, you know, UK English, C-O-L-O-U-R, right? It's the same word, it's spelled a little different based on where you are. Uh, and so that's what the, the vast majority of those differences are, but sometimes one manuscript will have uh, uh, something different, like a verse 34 here that says, uh, you know, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. So what's probably happening here is that at some point in the transmission of the text, the scribe added that verse 34 in to say, like Silas stayed behind and later went out to Paul, or went out with Paul, instead of, you know, Silas going back to Jerusalem and coming back to Antioch to go out with Paul. And so uh, that is not in the, the best manuscripts that we have access to. And so because of that, translations like the ESV have decided we should put that in a footnote because we don't think it was originally part of the text. And the question that you probably have is then why is it numbered verse 34? The reason why is because whenever the guy, like Stephanus, made the verse numbering system, um, which you'll notice sometimes, right, there's, there's weird breaks between verses, and there's this uh, story, this joke that people will say that, like, what he did is he was riding a horse around while he was making those divisions, and whenever he hit a bump, like, that's where he put a new verse. Uh, but he evidently had access to a manuscript that had that line in there, and so he numbered a verse 34, even though it doesn't seem like it was originally part of the text. The ESV wanted to preserve that tradition, and so that's why it goes 34-35. If you have any questions about that, if that like freaks you out and gives you a crisis of faith, like I would love to get together and talk to you about that, uh, because that's not my intention. My intention is to avoid that by talking about it. So if you have any more questions, or if that doesn't make sense, uh, let's talk about that so that it can. So the last thing we see in this passage is Paul and Barnabas uh, get into a little kerfuffle. Um, Paul wants to go back and, and see the churches and see how they're doing to encourage them to build up leaders to you know, expand the mission. And Barnabas says, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, John Mark's a joker. He left us last time. There's no way I'm going if John Mark goes. Luke says, there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. So Barnabas takes John Mark, they go west to Cyprus, Paul brings Silas back from Jerusalem, they go north and then west through Syria and Cilicia. And there's two things we need to talk about this. The first thing is that even though it's bad how this happened, multiplication is good for the church. Right before this, there was one missionary team going out, Paul and Barnabas. Now there's two, Paul and Silas and Barnabas and John Mark. That is a good thing that should be celebrated in the life of the church. Uh, more churches are going to be strengthened faster. The mission is multiplied. This is a great thing. And we should recognize as a church that as we grow, as our MCs grow, multiplication is going to be necessary. And it won't be fun. Because we like one another, we like the groups we're in, we're like the people that we're in groups with. But if we want to multiply the mission in our church and in our city, uh, and, and even like across this nation and world, we want to be a church that sends people out. It's better for us to be like that, even though it's uncomfortable. A second thing that we need to talk about this, 
is, what about last week? I, last week, I made a big deal about how when things got tough, when there was controversy, when there was conflict, Paul and Barnabas, they pressed in. And now, they bow out. Right? I even joked and said, like, you, you can only leave a conflict when it gets to the point of attempted murder. And Paul and Barnabas aren't trying to kill each other here. So two things about that. The first thing is last week, my goal was to intentionally swing the pendulum to an extreme. The reason why is because I know that I need that push to press in when things get difficult. And I know that you need that push to press in when things get difficult, when things get uncomfortable, when conflict gets hard, when there's controversy. Our natural response is to back away because it's easier. And so we need a push to press in. The second thing that we should see about this is that this isn't the end of Paul and Barnabas' story. Right? Them going separate directions doesn't mean that they don't care about reconciliation. Them going second, there's different directions means that they're not going to put the mission on hold until that happens. These churches need to be built up. The gospel needs to go forth. And so they're going to split ways for now so that they can do that with the hope that reconciliation will still come later. And in fact, that's what the New Testament hints at later on. There are passages uh, in, in 1 Corinthians and Colossians where Paul later speaks favorably of Barnabas. There are passages in uh, Colossians in 2 Timothy where he speaks favorably of John Mark. Right? Even at the very end, he says that, that he, he asked for John Mark Paul, asked for John Mark to be sent to him because he will be useful to him in his ministry. So this isn't the end of their story. This doesn't mean that this conflict just happens forever and that they're forever apart. I think restoration and reconciliation still happen. I think one thing we should see here in Barnabas' actions is that he takes a significant risk leaving Paul, right, who's like the best missionary ever. He leaves Paul to start up with John Mark, who had already bailed once, early on in the process. Barnabas takes risk to himself, risk to the mission, so that John Mark can later become someone who is helpful to Paul in ministry. In fact, it's not the, it's not the first time that, that uh, Barnabas has taken a risk like that. Earlier in Acts, we saw him take a similar risk when he reached out to this new guy named Paul to welcome him in, to bring him in. Barnabas is consistently taking risks for the sake of relationship, for the sake of building others up, for the sake of multiplying the mission. And we are called to take similar risks. Relationships are hard. And we're going to get hurt. But that's how we grow. That's how others grow. That's how the mission goes forth, is by us walking forward, even when it's difficult. And in a much greater way than what we see in Barnabas and John Mark and Barnabas and Paul, we see the early church at this point taking significant risk to welcome the Gentiles in. Right? The Gentiles didn't grow up in synagogues. They didn't grow up going to the temple. Their worship looked a lot different. Their preferences were a lot different. Their lives were a lot different. 
Everything about them was different from the Jews, but the Jews took risks to welcome them into their community, to accept them because they have faith in Jesus just like the Jews do, to accept them because they have the Holy Spirit just like the Jews do. God saved them in the same way. And because of that, the only in-step with the gospel response for the Jews was to welcome them in, to invite them in, to accept them as they are, not how they want them to be. This is what we want as a church. We want the spread of the gospel to put us in a position where we have to welcome in people that are different than us. People that make us uncomfortable. People who didn't grow up in church. People who don't worship like we worship. People who don't think about things how we think about things. People who have different opinions, different ideas, different you know, perspectives. We want to welcome in people that are challenging us for us to interact with. Because as that happens, we will grow. We will be sanctified. They will grow. They will be sanctified. The mission will go forth in our church and in our community. We want to be people who take risks to welcome those who no one else is going to welcome. People that are difficult, people that are hard, people that no one wants to be around. People that are challenging. Because that's what Jesus did for us. And we were dead. Growth doesn't get much more difficult than growing dead people. And Jesus brought us back to life. Welcomed us into his family. And he took risk for us. Now, right, I'm reformed. When I say he took risk, I didn't mean to like, you know, open theism. That's not what I'm saying. People are going to freak out about that. I'm saying he suffered. In our place and on our behalf. So that we can have faith in Him. So that we can have life. So that we can have salvation. So that we can have a family. So we want to be people who, who like Barnabas, like the early church, take risk because of what Christ has done for us. Let's, let's pray and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Jesus, we thank you that you you left a perfect place, a perfect relationship to come down here where it's broken and relationships are broken. And then you did it so that you could make us whole. So you could fix what's broken in this world, broken in us, to bring us back to life, to bring us from being outsiders to insiders, being on our own to in the family, children of wrath to sons and daughters of God. We thank you that you have moved us from the domain of darkness into your kingdom. We pray that you would use your spirit to motivate us with that good news. 
that we would invite others in and, and welcome others in and, and proclaim the good news to them, not so that we can earn favor with you because of how much we love you and what you've done for us. Pray that the, the reality of the gospel and its implications would push us outward, beyond ourselves, beyond our own little bubbles, into the lives of others and into the life of our community. And we would risk so that the gospel can go forth, so that the mission can multiply. So that more and more people might come into the family. So that others might know you and the goodness of the gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen.